I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Judy Fan. She's an assistant professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego, where she runs the Cognitive Tools Lab, soon to be moving to Stanford University, reverse engineering the human cognitive toolkit. Judy, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thanks for having me. It's nice to talk to you. You as well. What do you mean by reverse engineering our cognitive toolkit? Yeah, so I, I suppose, um, you know, one term in there, one key term in there is the notion of reverse engineering. Um, and the other is the cognitive toolkit. So reverse, reverse engineering is the idea of trying to uncover the um, principles and constraints that give rise to a given system as it as we can observe it and interact with it. Um, and that's a principle that it's a, that's applicable in all kinds of domains. Um, um, in this case, we're asking like, how does the mind come to take the form that it does rather than some other form? But of course you could ask the same question about some cool gadget that you just encountered too, and think about how it functions. Like how does a microwave work? You can attempt to reverse engineer other objects too. Um, in our case, we're interested in the human mind and in particular the cognitive toolkit, um, which I take to refer to the range of material artifacts that people use to help them think. Basically, objects that are intended to have an impact on how and um, what, what we actually believe. So for example, um, the, uh, the discovery of numbers also unlocked um, different ways of encoding number in in um, in physical formats, including the use of numerals or various counting devices, and these ended up being really useful in like lots of different cultures in order to support accounting in everyday contexts, as well as to manage trade relationships between groups. That is an example, like those accounting devices, like Kipu mm -hmm. in the um, ancient Incan Empire, is an example of a a material artifact, literally the knots in the strings that were used in order to keep track of quantities, like how those are actually used to manage information and to share the information with others is an example of what I'm calling a cognitive, of a cognitive tool or what I also um, call a cognitive technology. Um, perhaps like the main um, case study that, um, uh, my collaborators I have been focusing on over the past several years is the use of pictures in order to communicate knowledge. So um, pictures emerged on the scene, you know, some 30 to 70,000 years ago, and we use them in lots of different ways to record our experiences um, and also to share information with, with others. So you might use pictures, for example, to encode um, information about um, spatial relationships between different um, landmarks that may be really far apart. You might actually draw a map in order to encode that kind of knowledge. Or you might, you know, draw um, a number line. You might um, draw um, a graph. All of these are examples of cognitive tools in our collective toolkit. And our goal is to uncover the um, constraints and the functional pressures that led us today to have have developed and discovered these tools um, and why they're so effective. 
I'm picking up on a tension between tools, which seem like something human created and other things like you mentioned discovery of numbers. So numbers, I know this is, there's debate about this, but I think of numbers as sort of just existing out there. So I, I would use that term discovered. And then when you're thinking about something like images, it's a, it's a harder in-between case, right? Because we can clearly create pictures, but then you might ask, did we already have some sort of innate mental representation? And that's what we're doing when we create a picture. We're just overlaying what we had in our head on top of the physical world. I love that question. No, I, I think that um, I do draw a distinction between, let's say, um, the nature of what numbers really are, right? And questions about that metaphysically, whether they exist separate from the minds that can think about them and contemplate them. And what I'm talking about when I'm talking about cognitive tools, which are, for example, number lines or mathematical notation, right? Or like spreadsheet software, which are clearly um, external representational supports that allow us to represent and reason about and perform operations on numbers more easily. So I'm thinking of those kinds of technologies that we invent in order to make those kinds of operations more fluid and accessible and learnable to others. This sounds like something that was classically studied using language. And then I guess what's happening now is you're branching out into other cognitive toolkits. I suppose so. I, you know, I do take a lot of inspiration from text, right? So pictures do precede text as it turns out. So um, the idea of being able to transcribe sound like speech sounds is a much more recent invention. <laughs> I won't say discovery, more recent invention than the um, practice of encoding um, a variety of different experiences, right? Be they visual or not, in some graphical format that isn't necessarily intended to, to encode speech sounds. So um, in some ways I see both text and images as being really part of the of the whole suite of different cognitive tools that we've inherited in the modern day. And in some ways, pictures as being a really good place to start, even if, and especially if you're interested in questions of where do symbolic systems come from? For example, script, like written, like writing systems. Writing systems emerged quite a bit later. And, um, and, and some of the scholarship on that question suggests that there's some um, bi-directional <laughs> interactions between the emergence of graphical systems and um, and uh, textual ones. But in any case, text inherits a lot of its function, I think, from like a longer legacy of like creating pictures, some pictures that look like things, other pictures that don't, um, but are serving some kind of um, function that um, people found useful at some point in time. You mentioned pictures being on the scene for 30 to 70,000 years. I'm guessing you're talking about cave paintings. Yeah. So, but you, you could make an argument that they've existed before that, and maybe we just don't have the evidence to stick around because our, our human brains haven't changed much in the past, like 200,000 plus years, right? I know, I know you can't prove this, but do you suspect that that sort of imagistic representation has been around longer? It's possible, you know, and I, um, I think it's really amazing how the um, techniques and archaeology have really um, helped to really expand our horizons when we're thinking about the early competencies of um, early modern humans, as well as other um, species related to modern 
related to Homo sapiens, but um, may also have possessed these capacities. And I think that we're increasingly gaining in like a more nuanced and enriched picture of how these capabilities initially emerged. I think when I say 30 to 70,000 years ago, um, um, what I mean is that we have evidence of this kind of activity appearing um, at least this uh, long ago. And it's mm -hmm. certainly possible that other signatures of it um, you know, emerged earlier, but evidence for it either hasn't survived or that we um, haven't yet um, come upon it. We've established what we mean by cognitive tools and established that they've been around for a long, long time. How do we get to reverse engineering? Yeah, yeah. So let me turn back to the question that you were posing um, a couple minutes ago about these imagistic representations or the use of pictures in various ways and the kind of like the ways in which cave paintings continue to be evocative for us, even though we will never meet the people who made them or know what they were really for, right? How is that possible? And so to some degree, a, a reasonable hypothesis that you might have is that there are mechanisms that are highly well, like highly conserved across generations in human, in human history, in human evolutionary history um, and cultural history that allow us to perceive visual forms in the external world in fairly similar ways. Like the basic machinery in your brain that allows you to make sense of all the points of light that are streaming in through your eyes, the basic principles that govern how that works is something that humans largely share in common and potentially share with some of our closest uh, non-human relatives, right? And so when it comes to reverse engineering, we're thinking, what are those mechanisms, right? Like, what are those principles? What is that machinery really like? And so um, insofar as it's the case that that hypothesis is true, that a lot of machinery is highly conserved and shared, then what you might expect is that a, um, let's say a system, now we're talking about like, Suppose you could build a system from scratch, right? That could operate on images, that it took images in. In some sense, it could, it, it could look at something and then do something with it. And at the end, make some decision about it. For example, um, describe what it was it was seeing. That's like the premise for a lot of the work that is done in machine vision and computer vision. And it's the problem of how do you build systems that are able to make sense of visual inputs, right? Patterns of light and make sense of it in a way that's meaningful. Um, identify that like a, like a picture, it contains um, like, a dog that is like on a rug in a living room. These are ways of describing what is relevant in a particular picture that you might develop a computer vision algorithm to perform. Okay, so as it turns out, um, in the last decade, there've been <laughs> tremendous advances in the development of these technologies in almost every direction, okay? There's been so much, um, progress in the 
pure engineering problem of developing systems that display various kinds of visual competencies, which raised a really, really thought-provoking set of questions among cognitive scientists and neuroscientists. Like, to what degree do these systems, these really complex, sophisticated, but artificial systems that didn't undergo the same kind of evolutionary um, change that we were just alluding to earlier, um, to what degree did their internal processes, the internal machinery, um, approximate or emulate certain aspects of the machinery in human brains, in say the human visual system or the primate visual system. And um, a few years before I began um, working on this question of how the ability to make sense of really abstract images, like for example, the kind of line drawings <laughs> um, that you um, uh, see in um, uh, political cartoons or cave paintings or um, um, in you know, th throughout art history, like how you make sense of these kinds of different visual styles and different ways that images can look. Before I began posing that question, there was a really a breakthrough <laughs> in understanding, in, in, in realizing that there were, um, there's a striking convergence between the systems that achieved a high degree of competence in understanding visual inputs and the um, certain aspects of how the internal um, units within the brain actually behave <laughs> when someone is looking at something. So that was like a, um, a, a a huge um, watershed moment in this area of visual neuroscience and computational vision that there was this convergence between engineering um, questions and, and, and challenges and biological questions and, and challenges. And then from there, um, my collaborators and I, this is um, Dan Yeamans and Nick Turk-Brown and I posed the question, okay, so you have these systems that to some degree at some level of abstraction, um, approximate certain aspects of how real, real neurons and real brains behave when um, a person or a non-human primate with a, um, a similarly organized visual system is looking at something and making some kind of decision about it, like, for example, categorizing what they see. Um, how do, how well do these systems generalize to more abstract visual inputs like line drawings and other kinds of abstract illustrations. And so in around um, 2014, 2015, um, when we showed abstract images like these line drawings and simple sketches um, to these um, computer vision systems, what we discovered was that there's pretty striking generalization actually to this really different type of input that had no color information, really sparse information about surface texture, right? So if something is really furry or brown <laughs> or like mottled in the world, many um, simple line drawings and sketches don't preserve the information. So if you actually zoom in on a sketch, it really doesn't um, preserve a lot of the richness of the visual world and natural visual inputs. And nevertheless, you and I can make sense of it without thinking twice. And 
just and these systems uh, had never seen a line drawing before were nevertheless able to make sense of it and perform quite well in um, tasks that involved recognizing the object represented in these sketches and so that is an example of um of of what what um you know you were asking about a few minutes ago when it came to reverse engineering the cognitive toolkit like one critical piece of this toolkit the ability to produce and understand abstract images pictures in order to convey what we perceive and know about the external world is a competence with visual inputs right is the capacity to perceive the external world in the in the distinctive way that humans do and to some degree you know that we share with other species and the answer comes in the form of an engineered system and the way in the degree to which these systems approximate the behaviors that we display when we look at these images how we make sense of oh, the wide variety of visual inputs that we can um that that that, that we encounter and that we can make sense of then that is a way of reverse engineering those mechanisms, for example. So for example, when humans look at a face, we have a specific area of our brain, fusiform face area that lights up. And in artificial neural networks that can recognize people or faces, they cluster in a similar way that we see in the actual human brain, and not only for faces, but for all different sorts of categories, we are categorizing the same way as the artificial net, or rather the artificial net is categorizing the same way as us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah, I think that that's a really, um, um, really interesting connection, right? So there's this um, really cool phenomenon that you're pointing to, which is um, our capacity as sighted humans to easily recognize many different identities, um, even when different people look really different. Like someone gets a haircut, someone dresses slightly differently, someone, um, you know, 10 years pass, <laughs> they might look a little different. And yet you can still, um, despite all of the all of that physical change, right, in the environment, still do a decent job in many cases of being able to identify who you're talking to just by looking at them, right? And so that's super cool. And I think a longstanding question is like, how is that achieved? Is there something really special? Is there like dedicated machinery that's you that's just dedicated for face processing and to support facial recognition that's somehow separate from all the machinery that we're generally using to make fine distinctions, say, between like letters on a page or like, um, you know, other kinds of like different kinds of apples <laughs> at the grocery store and like this kind of thing. And, you know, of course, we're using much more than the fusiform face area in order to process faces. Um, we're using the full visual system and the full brain, in fact, to, in order to, um, in order to um, um, display those kinds of behaviors, perform those kinds of tasks. Um, but I think what you're pointing to is like there, there's this kind of emergent selectivity among a subpopulation of real neurons and real brains that is very reliably, um, um, has been like highly reliably associated with tasks that involve looking at faces and identifying faces. And there's a puzzle there, which is like, why should that be? Where does that come from? 
And one, um, you know, uh, um, this is a, a finding that I remember hearing about from some colleagues some years ago now, and I'm sure it's it's come out um, in full form since um, um, where this emergence of units, artificial neurons in this case, in these artificial systems, like these units that also displayed face selectivity, in other words, responded more to faces than to non-face inputs, um, was something that emerged in the course of these artificial vision systems being trained, even if there were no faces that appeared in the training data, which is remarkable, right? That in wow. some sense, like face experience with faces does seem to play some role in the development of um, our facility with identifying faces. There's other um, evidence, um, um, thinking of relatively new work from Mike Arcaro and Marge Livingstone on, on the role of specific experience with faces for the emergence of this kind of, um, of, of, of these face patches and face areas that specialize in these kinds of um, inputs, but also that um, there, th that you can find that you can train a system for one kind of task and nevertheless, um, like for example, to uh, discriminate between images or to label images, even if there are no faces in them, right? And nevertheless, what can emerge is a competence with other kinds of stimuli or other kinds of inputs, even if they didn't appear in the training data set. Um, and so like, that's like, that's like a, 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 a take home lesson that feels also very timely <laughs> um, mm -hmm. today, you know, as we're thinking about what is emerging in really large um, engineered systems um, with access to the kind of inputs um, that we contend with um, and are asked to produce outputs that are like the kind of outputs that we also generate. Yeah, if we're talking about all of the amazing computational advancements in vision and language, and also talking about the human cognitive tool of being able to create images that symbolize things, we should talk about Dolly, the open AI program, where you can input text, any text, like you know, a panda riding a unicycle while juggling or something, and it can actually create the image of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really, it's really fascinating, right? Like, I guess there are so many um, different potential applications of software like this for um, non-artists and artists alike, you know? Um, it's also, um, I think, a, a, a site of, um, I think it can be a really um, uh, useful place to to look and think um, if you're interested in cognitive science, right? If you're interested in thinking about the relationship between language and um, um, images <laughs> and like visual experience, and thinking about like what must the um, what must you know visual experience be like, well, what, what must pictures be like such that we can describe them in this way and that it's possible to link our, let's say our uh, design intentions in text and expect a system, any system or anybody to know what it is that we're conjuring up in our mind's eye, right? Like 
you know, I think for a long time, um, if we're if we're not yet talking about applications and thinking about the deeper fundamental questions in cognitive science that technologies like this raise, I think they raise questions about you know what kind of um, hidden hidden ways of understanding the world around us, um, what folks in our community you know refer to as like latent representations, these mental representations, like what must those be like? such that we can connect um, text and extract meaning from them that we can also um, leverage in order to produce, to design, to create some kind of meaningful image that captures that, right? To some degree, these multimodal systems, right, that are trained not just on one kind of information modality, like only text or only pictures, the kind of rich latent representation that they actually acquire. I think it's pretty stunning. I think we're in early days of understanding exactly what these systems, including Dolly, have really, really acquired. This is making me wonder from uh, an evolutionary and historical perspective, how much these human cognitive advancements are biased by extremes. So for example, if you tell a story like in the 1600s, we discovered calculus, we being humanity, but it was really only Newton and Leibniz and maybe a handful of others who were able to understand and digest those findings. And you can say the same thing about Einstein and general relativity in the early 1900s. And you can say the same thing about like in the 1960s, we went to space. But again, we only means like a very, very handful of the select most genius individuals, whereas maybe the average human cognitive toolkit is more or less staying the same. And then if you go back like 70,000 years ago to cave paintings, is it the case that this was a milestone for humanity? Or is it the case that maybe you had like one artistic genius who's the only person who ever thought of making a cave painting, but then it sticks around and it it biases us in thinking that this is what the average humans were doing? Mm. I think you're raising a super interesting question. And I guess the short, my short response is yes. <laughs> you want it, you guys like, is, is it this or is it that? And my answer is yes. It really does seem like both. Like you're asking this question about, you know, what gives rise to human variation, right? Different people growing up in different places um, really end up experiencing the world in different ways, arriving at decisions, different decisions, um, even two people growing up in the same household might grow up into different individuals. And how what what gives rise to that amazing variation? Sometimes that variation can be projected along axes that we associate with genius or exceptional performance. And like those are super interesting cases. Um, but I think that, you know, there is this deep question that I think you're raising about human variation and how um change is propagated throughout. Okay, I think you're raising like two really interesting questions that I wanna be able to touch on a little bit. So the one is about um, understanding and how like making sense of human variation, okay, on the one hand, um, including those axes that seem to project on, you know, genius. <laughs> um, and then there's a second um, um, component to your question, which is like thinking about to what degree do discoveries made by a few end up propagating across human societies and end up being a part of our collective toolkit, which you could operationalize as being accessible 
learnable, available, right? For more, more humans to make use of. Okay. And I think there are some really great examples of, of, of ones that have done a great job of propagating. Okay. So mm -hmm. if I start with the second piece first, um, I'll give literacy um, as an example of something really remarkable that has shifted profoundly in the past century. Basically, we, 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 all of humanity, okay, um, not us alive today, but those of us, you know, present a century ago, like, we went from a world where it was commonplace that most people wouldn't learn to read. Most people wouldn't be expected to know how to read and write, okay, by the time they were an adult, to a world in which most people can. How did we achieve that? I think there were remarkable social and cultural changes and technological advancements of various stripes, different, you know, um, all kinds of changes. And, and I think that that is, um, you know, that provides a lot of inspiration to, to me in thinking about how these tools have propagated. Now, Newton and Leibniz, you mentioned calculus. Yeah, it seemed like something that was, um, ripe for discovery or invention when it was around that around that time um given that you know these different um, luminaries and mathematics seem to come upon similar ideas around the same time despite using different notational schemes and yet it's something that is has been integrated into the standard math curriculum in most um like high schools and colleges, like there's there's the ability to take a course, a standard course in calculus. You basically gone from something being the very very tip of the edge of our knowledge as humans to something that's been um, recontextualized as a tool that you can use to think new thoughts <laughs> in the domain of mathematics that you can take with you to a variety of different other domains, like in engineering or in science. Um, and so I think that's really remarkable. I think those are, I think mm -hmm. these cases of, of how, um, you know, formal education in the, United States, in the United States gets a bad rap. Um, and I, I sometimes worry about that because I think that we can overlook, right, the tremendous successes also in our recent history when it comes to achievements, like real substantive and important achievements that we've made in actually um, making these kinds of discoveries, even if they were initially made by a select few, and sharing them with more humans, uh, more people, um, and giving more people access to those cognitive tools. And I think that like we're all better off for it. We're yeah, all absolutely. better off. Yeah. So I think you know, literacy versus calculus yeah. is a really interesting case study because there's there's something that is telling me like okay, but Literacy is different. Everyone can read. And calculus is different because most people can't do it. But then maybe that's just the bias of the education system because literacy is hammered into us from a young age. And calculus is seen as like this pinnacle of something very optional at the end of high school, even optional in college for most people. Yeah. So most people either don't do it or struggle with it. But, and then there's but there's the question of like 100 years ago when literacy wasn't as common, you could easily imagine the, this a, another like ivory tower type argument of oh most people just aren't meant to read reading is literacy is something like calculus how we look at calculus nowadays 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's it could be possible that different different um, different kinds of cognitive tools, if you will, may may be um, useful to different degrees in different historical moments. You know, and I and I think that like the main point that I'm trying to get at is that we shouldn't think of the kinds of cognitive tools that are currently prominent, like in the in the age that we live in to necessarily be like reflective of like all the, like the way that it has to be the way it always was and the way that it has to be in the future. So just as a hundred years ago, as you mentioned, right? Um, maybe many fewer people alive then were able to read and the expectation that everyone should read and write and be able to add and subtract was um, just really different from the expectations that we have today. Um, for those same skills. And I think that it's may still be the case that there are some skills that are um, going to be more useful for specialists than they are for everyone, right? So that calculate, it may not be nearly totally fair to compare, say, um, calculus as such to the ability to, like, I don't know, read a road sign or something like that. But there may be, um, certain kinds of ways of reasoning that are like mathematical forms of reasoning or reasoning about quantities, reasoning about uncertainty. There are certain kinds of mathematical reasoning abilities I think we could put on par with reading and writing um, that really should be something that everyone <laughs> acquires fluency with. Um, and and um, that shifts over time. And in the future, I think that we can continue to reimagine what those competencies really might be that'll actually set people up for a lifetime of being able to adapt to a more rapidly changing world, including the changing landscape um, due to technological change. So clearly there are gonna be differences in human cognitive toolkits. People will choose to specialize, you know, you might not use calculus or you might use it a lot. Um, but we're dancing around this nature nurture question of where do those differences come from? So we've already covered the nurture bit, which is to say that education plays a large role and whatever historical cultural context you're in, to what extent are is the ability uh, to access certain cognitive tools, so to speak, uh, there is there a genetic component to that? I mean, I suppose, so when I hear, you know, about the nature side of this ledger, what I think of is, I think of as learning, but over longer time scales. I think of like learning over intergenerational time scales, evolutionary time scales, rather than within lifetime time scales. And when you're contemplating those time scales and you're thinking about a species as complex as us, a species um, where there's a lot of genetic recombination <laughs> at every generation, right? That you're you're looking at a species with really substantial and meaningful individual variation that shares uh, an endowment, an evolutionary, a common evolutionary endowment, but that one that also um, faced a wide variety of different kinds of challenges and like different kinds of functional pressures that made that kind of diversity and variation, well, a hypothesis that I have anyway, is that that kind of variation, like the fact that we are not all identical, 
cognitively or otherwise, like psychologically identical, physically identical, is 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 something that is a biological fact that deserves explanation. And even before you assign value to it one way or another, like any one particular way that, um, you know, any particular phenotype over another, that's like a biological fact worth understanding. And I suppose the hypothesis is that like the kind of circumstances in which humanity evolved and emerged was the kind of, was the kind of environment such that this kind of randomness randomness across people, random variation across people, across generations was like potentially like good in some sense for our species to flourish in the ways that it did. We don't bud, right? Unlike other, like, unlike other species, you can't like easily splinter an entire uh, human being off um, by like, you know, taking someone's arm and then like growing a whole person out of it. Like that, that kind of thing is, it remains in the realm of science fiction. Um, so you study how we use images to transmit information. And I don't know how much of this is like real science versus pop science, but you hear about some people are visual learners and then other people are more systematizing and they're thinking like may maybe you deal better with numbers or words as opposed to images. So A, uh, how much of that is, is real science? And then B, assuming that it's real, what gives rise to those individual differences? Yeah, it's super interesting. So um, my understanding of that research literature is that while the idea that there are visual learners um, and maybe kinesthetic learners and their different learning styles has a lot of intuitive force, it doesn't do a great job of explaining um, learning behavior and learning outcomes. And so I think both sides of that, those findings I think are really fascinating and, and worth unpacking. So for example, like the fact that the idea of learning styles is so natural the idea that someone might think of themselves as like thinking in pictures and others more verbal i think is like a really that that feeling about oneself that that feels like an insight that one can have about oneself that differs from others i think is a psychological phenomenon in its own right worth it worth understanding even if it doesn't predict behavior even if it doesn't predict like performance um, academic performance, performance, and various ways <laughs> of like on you know various tests intended to measure learning um, in real classroom environments. You know, that said, you know I think that you know my um, you know the idea that multiple modalities can be really useful, multiple information modalities, in other words, can be really useful for helping people learn. I think really is a valuable idea. The idea that like let's say um, when you're designing a, a lesson or you're you know, developing a new curriculum that um, as, a, as a teacher say, um, developing those lessons and curricula in a way that are going to be engaging for people that allow people to express their knowledge or what they're learning about in multiple ways, it does seem, um, does seem to be uh, a good idea and a, a, a an approach to pedagogy that is like well supported by the evidence that I'm aware of in educational psychology. Um, even if you know a teacher holds a belief about the, that kind of variation um, 
giving rise to variation between individuals in the classroom, if it leads to lessons that engage learners in multiple ways where they can exercise <laughs> their like new skills and apply the concepts that they're learning in pictures and words and by making things and you know, that's great. That that does seem quite useful. In developmental uh, literature, you you sometimes get these cool interaction effects of where you unlock one cognitive tool and then it allows you to unlock another or like do something with another that you couldn't do uh, previously. For example, Nadia Chernyak, one of my early podcast guests, and I emailed you about her. I don't know if you had a chance to look into any of her work. She studies children's conceptions of fairness and numeracy development. And we have this intuitive sort of social cognitive sense of fairness, less or more fair or unfair. But then once children develop numeracy, this is like a completely independent cognitive tool. You're not really taught numeracy in the context of evaluating judgments of fairness. But as soon as you unlock that, they started using numbers to evaluate, oh, well, this is unfair because, you know, I got six pieces of candy and he got eight and they can quantify it and in a way that they couldn't do previously based on that sort of intuitive sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, 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 I love those examples of, you know, and if you think of all of these different um, behaviors as manifestations of the like the expansion of the cognitive toolkit throughout development, I think it can be really useful to think of those in those terms, right? Like it's a metaphor, of course. Like we we bring to mind, you know, when we think of um, examples of tools, or maybe thinking of like screwdrivers or hammers or these kinds of things, but the the like what we find really um, um, you know where their hallmark feature is that you can apply them to different things, right? You can use a tool and it helps you um, um, perform some task, achieve some particular goal um, in 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 different settings. And I think this idea that you can take um, um, these emerging concepts, um, emerging number concepts, and apply them to social settings and to reason about um, equity and inequity, I think is like a prime example of this. I think that, you know, I took a lot of inspiration and I was um, trying to make, you know, formulate these questions at the um, outset of my career, I was taking a lot of inspiration actually from these examples in um, numerical cognition, actually, and thinking about cross-cultural variation in um, the use of explicit number words and the stakes that that has for how you keep track of quantities, right? Um, I was thinking of, um, you know, work um, um, uh, with the Piraha um, that a lot of folks have been involved with um, that examined differences and how uh, people um, either growing up in so-called Western contexts and people growing up in, um, in this particular community um, kept track of quantities when you counted up as opposed to when you counted down and how those were different um, settings, like behavioral settings um, in the Piraha by comparison with um, numerate individuals growing up in a Western context who were learning to um, handle and manipulate those quantities, um, those exact quantities, where that 
ability, that kind of activity was like highly behaviorally relevant for being a member of that group. Um, so like, and you know, all the different ramifications of like having these um, um, kinds of numerical abstractions available to you, unlocking, like you said, a variety of different other thoughts that you might have when you're contemplating, you know, not only fairness, but also when you're thinking about like planning, you're thinking about how long something will take versus another, if you can really think about exact duration, how does that change the game when it comes to forecasting for the future, for example? Judy, you're about to make a big transition in your lab, moving to Stanford. What are you most excited about or future research plans? Um, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it is a, um, in some ways, it's it's a big transition, but it's also it's a um, it's a place. Um, I feel really fortunate to have gotten to know, and um, um, having done my postdoc there in the psychology department, um, I alluded to my fascination with education systems earlier in our chat. Um, what I'm really really excited about is um, the ability to team up with. Um, computer scientists, researchers um, at the Graduate School of Education, um, basically um, individuals throughout campus who are thinking really hard about the relationship between these emerging technologies, including in machine learning and artificial intelligence, and the real class, real world class learning context that many children young adults find themselves in and thinking really hard about um, the kinds of learning objectives that make sense in the 21st century, thinking about the role that um, um, these AI systems might play in providing feedback to learners or support to teachers in the classroom, think about the ways that it might unlock really um, forms of pedagogy that we've known for a long time are really valuable, including project-based learning, <laughs> basically like thinking about how more of the way that learners explore new topics and areas is motivated by intrinsic interest that they bring <laughs> to, you know, to that topic, and then giving them tools for um, pursuing and completing a, a project on that that's really creative. And I think, you know, despite the value of those learning activities, they've been very difficult to scale. And I'm really excited to think about, you know, in collaboration with other um, members of this, um, of the learning sciences community at Stanford about different ways that these emerging technologies coming out of artificial intelligence and machine learning community can be leveraged in order to support those like richer generative forms of learning. So that's something that has been a big part of um, what has inspired my research as a cognitive scientist for a long time. What I'm looking forward to in the next, you know, five to 10 years is really um, working much more directly on those issues in real world learning contexts. Have you heard of the Human Screenome Project going on at Stanford? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm imagining more. that when you're talking about scalability of education, doing it through screens has a lot of potential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are these, you know, you say learning environment, and you might think of, 
you know, a brick and mortar classroom, right? With desks and like objects and, you know, I don't know, worksheets, or I don't know, like something like there are like a variety of different props that you might think of that you associate with, with, um, with learning in the classroom and formal education. I think you're totally right that like the interface that many learners have to new knowledge and information is mediated, mediated by digital tools of various kinds, digital devices of various stripes, right? Including ones with screens, right? Mm -hmm. And so thinking about, you know, what, not only like what's on the screen, right? But also like how people explore um, their, uh, you know, particular workspace, even if it's like a virtual workspace, some kind of virtual environment that they're able to, um, you know, navigate to a different module or different chapter and try some experiment out, <laughs> you know, it's like, it may be mediated by a screen um, in some ways, but being able to think about um, ways of, um, you know, making that an ex like a learning experience for people that is engaging and appropriately immersive and it's actually like where they can feel um, a sense of agency in directing their learning while also being supplied with like the relevant support and feedback that'll actually help them um for example like pursue a question that they really care about um so uh, let me give you a more concrete example of a direction that um we're just getting off the ground, which is- in let, the, let me give the... you a bad example first, and then you jump in with a good example. <laughs> okay, okay, sure. So about 10 years ago, I was part of one of the first pilot schools in the Los Angeles Unified School District where every uh -huh. kid got an iPad. And uh -huh. the goal was going to be like, look at all these ways that technology is going to improve your learning. But I think yeah. it was a disaster because everyone was just playing games and zoning out during class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know- I think there's uh, an, a broader lesson that I, I feel like we've um, learned over time, which is that the changes in our technological landscape can lead to amazing gains, but also some serious drawbacks and failure modes, right? Like the internet being another prime example of this as mediated by screens, of course, but the ability for us to talk, right? Even though you and I are currently located at opposite ends of the country, right? We can still interact in real time and that's amazing. Like we can collaborate, um, we can have this really wonderful conversation. Um, and um, at the same time, you know, we all are also constantly bombarded with notifications coming from every app on every device that may make it more difficult to concentrate even on those wonderful collaborations you might have with people around the world. And so, you know, a lot of these advances can be double-edged. And I think that, you know, I, in, you know, in um, adapting to and like proactively thinking about the potential for new technologies that have yet to emerge and the role they might play in the classroom, you obviously want to be um, attentive to the fact that like it's, it's, you know, there are good ways of scaffolding really enriching um, learning experiences. And there are also other ways that you can interact with screens that, you know, don't necessarily achieve those objectives. I and mean, maybe that's something that you've experienced, 
Um, and that feels like it resonates with my experience as well, right? As someone who owns a smartphone, like I also know what it's like to get kind of sucked into doom scrolling and like losing track of time, even as, you know, there are also these really wonderful ways in which I feel like the internet access to it has like greatly enhanced my life intellectually and socially in every other way. Um, so, mm -hmm. okay. So like in some ways it's like maybe it's not about the screens. It's about the kind of way that you scaffold activities that involve those kinds of artifacts. Um, so the example um, that I was gonna share with you has to do with statistics education and data science education, especially as it manifests in, um, in the K through 12 context, as well as throughout higher ed. Um, the reason why I think statistics, it's a really exciting time to be thinking about stats education and data science education is because the world that we live in is awash in data and numbers and measurements of all kinds. And increasingly, the phenomena, the, the societal challenges that we face are so, they are unfolding on a scale that are really difficult to fathom, to directly access through our senses. And so, you know, when we think about pandemics <laughs> and the time course over which pandemics unfold, we're thinking about climate change and the scale and, 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 um, and speed of those kinds of phenomena. The tools of statistics and, 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 and data science are like a provide like a general purpose toolkit, I'll say, for, for taking those kinds of phenomena as diffuse and vast um, and stochastic as they may be, and somehow distilling really important aspects of them into objects that can like fit in the palm of our hand. So for example, when you like open up like a, I don't know, like a, the, the news, when you're reading like the news on, on your phone, for example, um, like the, that outlet might show you a graph, right? Like, oh, this is how, I don't know, interest rates are changing over time or whatever happens to be in the headlines, that's mm -hmm. something you can't directly see, smell, or touch, right? You can't see and smell interest rates directly. And yet it's like something that um, data scientists, statisticians, scientists, researchers have found a way to make something that you can look at and make sense of and then, um, then decide what to do with, right? Um, mm -hmm. as a as a as a as a citizen or as a voter. So those are reasons why I care about stats education and data science you know, education, why I think it's really an important problem right now. And I think that there are these um, open challenges in how we um, learn, how we teach and learn statistical concepts. Um, in other words, like how we go from, for example, thinking about um, statements about the world being, um, in black and white to thinking about the world in shades of gray, which is, I think is like the kind of way of coming to understand the world that statistics actually supplies you with. The idea of appropriately calibrating your uncertainty and having an appropriate amount of intellectual humility when it comes to like what we know about how well a certain drug works relative to another. It might be tempting to conclude or to share, um, you know, in a press release, like this drug works, this clinical trial proved that it's it works and make those kinds of categorical statements that paint the world in shades of black and white. And I think what, what we 
what I find really urgent is the ability to share this cognitive tool of being able to think in shades of gray with more people so that mm -hmm. we can cope with a landscape that's really complicated, right? The world is a right. complicated and changing place. And I think that we um, should believe in ourselves and our ability to, um, you know, up the ante and like level up our game when it comes to more of us being able to engage in that kind of thinking. So that's like a particular domain that I'm really excited about, you know, thinking about the role of learning technologies for data science education. Um, um, and I appreciate you asking about that. But that's a great cautiously optimistic note to end on. Thank you very much for your time, Judy. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. This is fun.